Welcome to Rules of the Frame. I am your host, Connor Reed, and here is your other host, John Skinner. Hey. So for those of you who are the first-time listeners, we are a film podcast. We pick a subject or theme and explore films related to those topics. Our overall goal is to encourage the general public to view film as more than just a piece of entertainment, but also a piece of art and something to discuss and explore. So we are in the midst of our Limitations Breed Creativity series, and... I mean, this. I feel like this film has the most obvious like limitations out of like all the ones that we've done so far. Like most of the ones that we've focused on, it's like oh, low budget or make a very personal film so that you can direct it. But I feel like this one is like the most obvious where it's known for its limitations. So the film is Russian Ark, and it is famous because it's all done in one shot. So of course we had to list it on here. I mean. We were kind of like going back and forth between a, a couple other like long shot films like Rope and Birdman, that sort of stuff. But I mean, you really can't top Russian arc. And plus, like it's just kind of position in film history is really interesting as well. So I'm I'm pumped to talk about it. Yeah, it's a it's a different limitation. That's for sure. All right. Well, I'll try to summarize this bad boy as best as I can. Um, so we'll we'll see how it goes. So Russian Ark takes place in the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia. We are transported back to the 1800s and see soldiers and party goers get out of a carriage and walk through the halls. And we hear narration of what is presumably the audience slash this person who has been transported to the Hermitage at this point in time. He then meets up with a French marquis who goes along with him, and they wander throughout the halls of the museum, seeing different historical points and different works of art. The Marquis then, throughout it, kind of discusses Russia's identity and trying to fit in in Europe, but he says it's more more of an Asian country than a European country and just trying to play into European culture and by ripping off the Vatican and famous European artists. They are greeted by many famous... uh, Russian characters throughout history like Catherine the Great and Nicholas II, all those sorts of people. They get to see uh, an emissary apologize to Nicholas II. They get to see a grand ballroom with a huge dance that goes on. And they finish off their trip with the end of the ballroom and the end of the party and look out over the endless sea that is surrounding the museum. Yeah. (laughs) So... I mean, I think that gets most of it. Um, (laughs) So my two words for the film are patriotic refuge. There's just an interesting trend with a lot of Russian films that turn patriotic and kind of go over the greatness of Russia and Russia's culture and history. And so I feel like this is kind of like the director's love letter to Russian art and culture and just like art and culture in general. But I mean, that the literal museum at the end of the film has turned into, like, the Russian Ark. Like, the thing that is 
holding in his view Russia's culture and history and kind of like an oasis in the frozen seas and everything else that is swirling around it. So, yeah. So my two words are confusing dream. Uh, because because I really, really liked this movie, but I was also watching it wrong, I think, in that uh, the, the dreamlike nature... I mean, it, it felt like the one shot really, really makes it feel like a, like a ethereal experience. Mm-hmm. But that also... And that was the part I liked was... was I mean, the, the technical side of it is, is so spectacularly... I mean, it's... It's so so over the top what they did, um, and and that's incredibly impressive. The history is impressive. The architecture is impressive. You know everything about the setting is impressive. And then, but watching that, trying to understand, and, and I and and getting the the metaphor of of art uh, culture in Russia, I, I get that. I got that stuff. But the act, I was trying to understand what was going on with the narrator and the. The Marquis, the French guy, the European. Mm-hmm. Uh, besides just what they're saying, but like understanding what they're supposed, like what state they're in, that kind of mm-hmm. confused me. And I, I, I probably spent too much time trying to figure out what the rules of the game were. Sort of. Yep. Um, that was the thing that really threw me off. But uh, I, uh, I was impressed by it while also being sort of. I, this is not, I'm not allowed, you're not allowed to say this is a bad movie, right? So <laughs> You can I'm say it's a bad movie that. if you want. It's it's our podcast, uh, we have the I, rules. It's hard, it's hard for me because clearly this, this movie did something spectacular and and this movie walked so that Birdman could run. <laughs> that, not that Birdman, not that Birdman was anywhere close to this level of technical right. achievement or logistics or whatever, uh, but that that movie made it possible for kind of in the last 20 years since or whatever, there's really been, uh, the wonder has become more, less of a gimmick and more of a, of a important part of mainstream filmmaking, which mm-hmm. is cool. Um, the, the long, long, I mean the Birdman, just to ha- the fact to, ha- to have an actual like normal, not, not normal, but like a, a wide, st- it's not just an art house film, presented at least as a one as one shot and obviously 1917 uh being a very a mainstream hit be the same way it was really possible i'm sure because of of this movie but having said that it was kind of hard for me to it, it made me a little angry because it was like man if you made this today right same resources same i feel like there would be some more, like you could do more with mm-hmm. it. In that, in that, the main characters could be more uh, something that you could grab onto and understand their, their motivations in a in a specific yeah. sense. Now, the other part of this is I don't understand. The big part that was weird for me was like, are they speaking weirdly? Like the timing, it's a lot. Of, there's a lot of mumbling to yourself and and repeating what you were saying over and over that I was not sure if that was intentionally strange or if that's, like, if you were Russian and you were watching this, how weird would it be, basically, that part of mm-hmm. the dialogue? Um, how dreamlike would it be? Or would it make a little bit more sense to the way people talk? I don't know. That was part that was, I wish I could know Russian fluently to, to really enjoy this movie more so that I could not be reading the subtitles. 
That's all to be said. Mm-hmm. I liked it a lot, but I felt like there was the the point that was being made about Russian culture, which is very. I mean, we'll go into that later, <laughs> but it's very very important. Um, seemed to be a little bit more vague, and there wasn't any specific points being made, just because so much time was spent on the ornate nature of everything that they were going through, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you're either just showing off the beauty of the building and the art in modern day, you know, art, you know, as the as the museum, or going back into, other than a couple shots here or there, is basically uh, Tsar era Russia, you know, the Russian Empire, mm-hmm. and then modern day. And so the, a lot of those old scenes that were so spectacular with the the music and the and the the dance and the and the multiple theatric performances that were happening within the movie mm-hmm. those are all amazing other than enjoying them and enjoying the 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 complexity of them there doesn't seem to be a value point being made yeah and uh that was my only thing that was like a little disappointing is like mm-hmm. there's more to rush martian art and maybe i'm missing the nuance of what he's saying but uh, the Marquis at the beginning is very dismissive, mm-hmm. right? He, th- there's a, there's definitely like a wish casting version of this because I, you know, do you know the the dude like wrote a scathing book? Yeah, the actual Marquis, some guy that wrote a yeah from the 1800s. yeah he wrote a scathing book about how Russia was not truly you know European uh, European mm-hmm. country. I mean that's the whole that is the whole essence of Saint Petersburg, mm-hmm. right? Is trying to be European, and there's always this this uh, contradiction because you have those wonderful scenes of of european courts on a scale that's huge right just the volume of people of of those russian um the uh the aristocracy mm-hmm. that are there is just the volume is so big and it's so much on a higher level than europe but then they have serfs mm-hmm. you know so there's a, there's a contradiction especially the 1800s of of their whole culture and so this is sort of the wish casting of what if this guy got stuck <laughs> in the museum and fell in love with mm-hmm. Russia? So I get mm-hmm. that. But it's not clear other than everything's nice and pretty yeah. what he was falling in love with. Yeah. I think he he grew to just appreciate all of it more and like see that it wasn't just a facade but actually like truly part of like Russian culture, especially with like the ballroom and just like I think the people and human interaction was actually the thing that converted him instead of like a lot of the art in it. Uh, Cause it's like whenever he's dancing with all the people in the ballroom or he's like running, you know, with the girls in the hallway and that that's more of the point where he's like, Oh yeah. You know, and like doesn't want to leave after that and sees it as a more like quote unquote European culture. Yeah. And I think that's where it fell short mm-hmm. for me is because that's part of it is the, is the human interaction and because I was so trying to understand the rules, trying to understand, you know, we'll talk about it in a second, but like, you know, just the, the, the rules of the game of what their existence is uh, and not really registering the normal. Like, I didn't register a lot of normal conversations. Everything seemed to be really – that every conversation – I was in the state of what is going on. And by the time I started to figure out what the dynamic of the conversation was, it was over. And so uh, I kind of missed the boat, I think, on on the human interaction. It didn't seem authentic to me. 
again, there's maybe a loss in translation, you know, maybe it's not the point is that it's, it's not, you know, real conversation, but I am not a party person. <laughs> so he didn't show, he didn't show the good conversation. He didn't show the punch bowl. So why are you there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, before we dig more into that, let's do our now in film history segment kind of give a background of this film so russian art comes out in 2002 and just kind of blows everyone away on a technical side and i mean does pretty well for like a foreign indie art house film uh, and the box office makes like six million or something worldwide which is pretty impressive and of course it's just like lauded everywhere and everyone's just talking about it. it's like oh my gosh like this movie came out that was like in one shot and all that the weird thing to me, it wasn't even nominated for uh, Best Foreign Film, which was kind of strange. I I mean, I had only seen like one of the other films that was nominated, but I was still just like, huh, that's odd. Other films coming around out around this time, got two Spielbergs this year with Catch Me If You Can and Minority Report, Gangs of New York with Scorsese, um, The Two Towers comes out, The Pianist, my favorite Disney movie, Treasure Planet. The Best Picture winner of the year is Chicago, which is an interesting one. I still haven't seen it, but I I know that's one. (laughs) Yeah, John, do you think it reflects uh, Chicago well? I cannot describe to you how how much of a culture shock it was for us that that movie was filmed in Toronto. Yep. That was like a big deal because Blues Brothers kind of burned the city on filming here on big budget movies and Toronto getting Chicago made the the mayor and everybody like realize oh we need to like not mm-hmm. do that we need to let people film we need to make it easier for movies to film yeah. here because this is a kind of an embarrassment mm-hmm. so no it doesn't because it didn't film it here <laughs> yeah um but this is also a great time because this is whenever foreign films are kind of creeping back into american society and like indie foreign films because in the past you have all of these different like types of foreign films that are like somehow creep into American popular culture. You know, like in the 50s and 60s and 70s, you have like the spaghetti westerns made in Italy. 70s and 80s, you have a lot of like kung fu and martial arts films that are coming in. And then now in like the late 90s, early 2000s, you have more ones that are being noticed. So, I mean, a big one is uh, Jean-Pierre Jeunet's Amelie, which is fantastic, but that one like also sneaks its way into American culture and like everyone just loves it and it's a huge hit. Uh, this year, or 2002, you also have um, City of God from Brazil, which is an incredible, just tour de force. I mean, that is just an incredible movie. Um, you also have Hero, which is one of like the coolest action movies of all time and just beautiful film as well. But yeah, I, I think the more interesting part of film history for Russian arc actually comes from its predecessors of just Russian films in general. I love Russian films so much. Just some of my favorite films of all time. Andrei Tarkovsky is like my favorite director. I just love Russian film history. And Russian film history is so interesting because I feel like Russian filmmakers build off of like their predecessors more than like any other nationalistic filmmakers and like build off of the rules and all that and i mean you're starting off with like sergey eisenstein and ziga vertov in like the 20s and 30s and eisenstein is the one who makes the montage theory and so strike in battleship potemkin 
are just two masterclasses in how to make effective montages and like lots of rapid cuts and lots of what Hitchcock will later go on and like describe as like reaction shots where you give two different sorts of images and see how like the mind connects them together and makes a person react. And so really playing with emotions and really telling stories visually and then like going into Tarkovsky's time in like the 60s and 70s, he's really interesting because he builds so much off of Russian visuals and using visuals to tell the story. Like you can almost just watch his films without the subtitles on and you'd still understand it just because he has just visual poetry and that's what really pushes the story along and really makes it so compelling. But it's interesting because he starts going into longer takes like Nostalgia and Sacrifice both end with two very, very long, very complicated takes, kind of sort of Russian arc-esque for The Sacrifice because the main house that they're in, this is spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen The Sacrifice, but the main house that they're in throughout the film burns down. And so it's just this long sequence of people walking around in the yard and the house slowly catching fire. And the first time they do it, their cameras malfunction and they don't get it and they burn down the house and like miss everything. And so they have to rush and they're like super over budget and like try to make the house all over again and cleared away like all the debris and rubble and then do the super long take again of all of these people like running around trying to throw water on the fire all this crazy sort of stuff. And so this is where Russian art comes in 30 years later, topping that even more of telling like, I mean, I it's like the same sort of thing where I feel like you could watch this movie without subtitles and there'd probably be the same amount of understanding. I mean, just like what you were saying, like how a lot of the dialogue is actually like pretty distracting. And I feel like that's where the visuals for this come in. But this is also like a really interesting just use and breaking rules for film because making a movie in one shot like if it was like an american filmmaker that they'd be like oh wow cool but this one's like interesting because it almost seems like a slap in the face to eisenstein who is russia's greatest film movement is the montage and montage theory and this is like such a slap in the face and like no, we're not going to do a montage at all. Like, we're going to have everything be one shot. There's going to be no cutting. There's going to be no any of that sort of stuff. And that's where, like, the interesting piece of this plays in. And I'd really love to know the director Alexander Sokorov's thoughts on this of just, is this kind of like a revolt against traditional Russian filmmaking and just traditional filmmaking in general of just kind of breaking the rules of, like, no, you don't need edits and you don't need to manipulate the viewer's eye in order to get a film? But love Russian films, love what this does. It'll be interesting just to kind of see what's going to keep on happening film-wise. Like, I don't really know of any contemporary Russian directors aside from Sokorov, but his last film came out in like 2015 or something, so. I would not be surprised to find out that there's less uh, freedom of expression in Russia right now, (laughs) and I don't know how that affects film. Um, But... Uh, it's interesting, you know, the the the, the Russian culture, the arc, right, mm-hmm. um, is an interesting idea, and uh, there's kind of a connection that I have in in my family, which is right. uh, my bro- my brother's adopted from Russia, and uh, we have a couple holidays we celebrate for that. We celebrate Russian Christmas, which is just we just celebrate another Christmas small 
as a family. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the other big thing that we do is is Gotcha Day, which is the day that he was, we officially got him. Um, and <laughs> kind of to celebrate both of those, we we try and make Russian meals. We we hmm. we t- we pretty much just settle on um, beef stroganoff, which is not an exp- an explicitly <laughs> Russian Russian dish, but we kind of just love it. But we it's do American have Russian. a it is American Russian. Uh, it's like a hybrid. We can't even we tried to look up like where it came from, and it's actually not super known where hmm. the origin is. It's kind of a lot of places, but yeah. Uh, we have a we have a cookbook and we don't we use it a lot but there was this russian cookbook and it's interesting because normal cookbooks full of pictures you know really well designed you know yep. uh just there's a high level production value that i think people are usually used to with a betty crocker or whatever cookbook um and this book was like a book like it was a book with with text in it and like there was no pictures it was the most plain it looked like you had <laughs> printed it off your yourself off the internet type of thing yeah. and uh so this thing was kind of had kind of a low-key low-budget vibe to it but the the core it was almost like an intellectual pursuit this the people that made this <laughs> dish because they're and they no I mean they explicitly said uh our goal with this russian cookbook is not only to to give you a list of you know popular famous russian dishes but to try and actually recover some of the lost Hmm. uh dishes that people don't make anymore or that that had kind of gone away and even though there's a lot of diversity of of dishes still in russia there has Mm -hmm. been a sense they had a sense that communism had so kind of papered over a lot of the different cultures and and mm-hmm. and bulldoze them, you know, that there was a lack of of a country that size should have more more cuisine than they have basically. Oh, completely. Yeah. And so it was it was interesting that they that they were trying to make this effort to rediscover and and research these old dishes that had gone away because people did not have the the uh, ability to shop for themselves or you know, everything was so streamlined with the way that they produced food and mm-hmm. And shipped it and everything that that there some of that was lost, especially I think particularly in Russia yeah. versus Ukraine or anything like that. Um, and I thought it was interesting because yeah, there's a sense that that culture in Russia is it's a fragile thing and you can lose yeah. it. And and I, I was actually a little surprised how little there was about the Stalin era. There was mm-hmm. two scenes, but one scene was the was the war, so that's yeah. really more just about the uh the the siege by the nazis and then the other one was because mm-hmm. the, the guy the guy's like making a coffin the for himself i yeah. think or i was a little confused at first but yeah once i realized once he was talking about it it made more sense that's you're, you're talking about the dialogue that's funny if you had little pop-ups that just said what era it was oh yeah and what pe- who and who people were you could get rid of you could pretty much get rid of the dialogue most of the dialogue do the dunkirk thing of like 1878 five minutes 1878 yeah five minutes i mean that was what was interesting is that this guy's the narrator's role is to explain what era it is and yet i was just i the way he talked and and the it it didn't seem like normal he seemed like he was in a trance the whole time Mm -hmm. and and so it that makes me try and solve you know like what are the rules and Again, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. But that part of Russian history is sort of just, I think, 
embedded in in their in their psyche, mm-hmm. and so there's not a, really a, a need to because the whole point of this is to show off some of the the beauty that that was lost and is as and is preserved. Yeah. And so I'm sure you know there wasn't a need to go through that a lot. Um, mm-hmm. But it was just interesting how how that's a huge part of the story is well, what's it an arc against, right? Well, communism did a number mm-hmm. on their preservation of of a lot of that stuff and and the preservation of their culture in general, and it's barely has a role. There's one scene that is really important, and that kind of that scene with the guys, that whole part was confusing too because honestly. They're talking like half. They're having an interesting conversation, and the guy, the narrator slash the French guy, are like having a really com- confusing conversation. And it's it seems like the narrator is trying to hide the future from the Frenchman. I think mm. right. Like anytime they talk about whenever communism, they, whenever they're going into the room that takes place during World War Two. Like whenever everything is no, gray, no, no. The, or... the other, the, the, there's the guys. They're talking about trying to preserve stuff, and it seems like that's like Stalin era. Yes. Okay. Like like so like like, like, like post World War Two. It actually has the current or the current at the time director of the museum, like the three guys in there. So it was like the current director, okay. the director before him, who was his father, and then um, the director before that. All just kind of talking about. Art. So I think that was supposed to be like modern day oh, or like okay. mixed timelines. Yeah. Okay. I guess the darkness of the lighting made me think it was World War Two, but like mm-hmm. after the war. So that kind of made me think, uh, just you know, fifties or something. But yeah, yeah. The the because they were worried about things not being preserved, which yes. I, I would assume is more of a concern back then. But the the thing is that. That scene was I like that scene and it's but he was talking about the the French guys you know sometimes is just going with the flow and then sometimes starts asking lots of questions in the narrator and then he's asking a lot of questions so you can't hear what they're saying and then after he's like oh it was a dream I made it up I lied like <laughs> I have no idea what that was about I don't I was a lot of that mm-hmm. happening where where there's motivations where he his conversation with the French guy, he seemed to repeat a lot of what he was saying, and then sometimes fight back as a Russian, mm-hmm. sometimes not. But I, I and I know there's a dynamic there at play that's a big part of the dialogue. But I just didn't, I could not grasp it. I could not grasp their relationship. Mm-hmm. I understand, I understand the French guy's the Marquis, his arc, mm-hmm. <laughs> his Russian arc, <laughs> is is to to fall in love you know with with this and and to kind of say yes this was this was good essentially by the end at least for him you know this was this 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 is a replacement for france this is a replacement Mm -hmm. for versailles this is this this fits among paris and berlin and all those things right Right. like they take their place among the great powers culturally so Mm -hmm. but i get that arc i don't understand the narrator if he's one person, it seemed like he's one person. Yes. But that was the part I didn't understand. I don't know. Do you have more insight into what he's supposed to be and what he's supposed to be doing? Right. So the narrator person who, like, the audience is, is actually voiced by the director. And so I think it's kind of, like, his thoughts. And, like, I I mean, there is a little bit of confusion that I was trying to figure out, too. I'm like, is he supposed to be 
critiquing Russia or praising Russia? Because there are points where I'm like, this seems more like a critique, but also it overall seems like a defense because by the end, the marquee is like sad to leave and like just wants to stay in the ballroom with like the big party and all that. I don't know. I mean, so maybe it's just like, oh, what would happen if you brought in, I don't know, like maybe also just like a French person into the Smithsonian along with like a really patriotic American and they just like walk through the halls and like the Frenchman is just like, oh, well, look at this American art. Like it's just trying to be different from European art and you're just trying to stand out too much or you're just stealing too much from Picasso or you're just stealing too much from Van Gogh and all that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah. So I think that's kind of more of along the lines. But also, I mean, I was wondering if the marquee stood for like actual like critiques of Russia and like even wondering how much of a critique against Vladimir Putin is in it um, because he was in his first term this time because his first term runs from ran from 2000 to 2008. So he had already been in office for about two years. I mean, and little would they know that after the term after him that he would be president again. Yeah, and and I, I think even back then probably he was more of a, in their minds a conventional mm-hmm. president. It was a kind of a slow descent, right. you know, into a soft and and even increasingly not soft uh, autocracy mm-hmm. there. So I'm not sure that two years in they would have had a critique going, but looking back you can critique right. stuff. You know, there's terrorist attacks that now look like they were staged possibly Mm -hmm. to to get him in power there's a lot of stuff like that where it's like wow this was bad from the beginning with him (laughs) but but the critiques the rush i mean i understood him as a russian Mm -hmm. and his sometimes saying things are good sometimes things are bad those are the parts i could grab onto and understand it was just the general dialogue of you know at the beginning they're kind of like, what's going on? I don't understand. Mm-hmm. People can't see us, I guess, right? Yeah. And then they walk into the art and they start looking at it and he starts critiquing Russia and he's defending and that all makes sense. And then they kind of ebb and flow between how much they are in reality mm-hmm. and not in reality. I'm, I, this, again, I may have made the mistake of trying to solve the riddle, but... Can can people see them? See, that's that's what I was trying to figure out, Mike. The rules are all kind of all over the place in this because at times it seems like they're like spirits just kind of floating around, but then at other points they're like actual people and can like actually interact with people. Whenever there's like the the scene in the hallway with per- Persia, Sar- Persian, yes, the Persian, the Persian ambassador, yeah, the the grandson of the emperor, or whatever, yeah, the Shah, the, the, the Shah. Yeah. yeah. Whenever he's apologizing, because I'm like, why is he walking? Like he has to be like a spirit, like a phantom figure, because he's walking like right in the middle of everything and like not getting stopped. But then the marquee gets stopped by one of the guards. But it's like, yeah, it's almost like they're pulling people into their world yeah. a little bit because. Because that interaction would have been awkward and, and loud. And so it it's very – it seems like halfway where, you know, if they want to push somebody, they can push somebody. But somebody's just going to kind of – it's not going to pull them out of where they're at yeah. either. The, the part – I mean, I like the ending. When you started to grab onto like, oh, these are historic, you know, Anastasia and, and seeing mm-hmm. the czar and the family. Like that stuff was good and it was really cool seeing that kind of – the play at the end mm-hmm. um but there's parts in the middle where 
I think I'm missing the meaning or missing what's going on. You know, he he interacts. He starts the Marquis starts flirting with every woman. <laughs> yeah. That he comes across. There's a. I mean, I I texted you. I was like, basically, he's going around flirting with women and sniffing paintings for about fifteen minutes yep. there, and and yelling at little boys who don't aren't Catholic. Like, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's that's the part. Is like I don't. I I you know we're talking about limitations. I think this is such an achievement that of course when it came out it was considered you know a, a spectacular you know masterpiece yeah. and and everything. But seeing since how people have sort of faked oneers, yeah. faked a one shot, you know, um, faked a, a, a whole movie being one shot, and then that allows you to actually do the filmmaking in a more precise way I part of my mm-hmm. s- struggle with this was like how much of this is just foreign language and it's art house so it's mm. not trying to be conventional and how much of this is yeah he's mumbling because that this is literally the only way you could do this and get through this amazing 90 minute shot you know like mm-hmm. I'm not even sure they could have dialogue that wasn't so kind of just reacting to everything because mm-hmm. that requires practice and, and, and rehearsal mm-hmm. and all these things. And so that was part of it. It was like, how much of this was sacrifice and how much of it was just an artistic choice, uh, mm-hmm. particularly in how the Marquis talks to other people and what's going on there? Because, yeah, his interaction with those women came across super weird to me, honestly, because... What what are they saying? I don't they, the the there's I can't even follow the logic of the conversation. <laughs> why are they why are they entranced with him immediately? Like there that was the part that the, in the middle especially that really started to be like uh, what is going on? <laughs> I actually I I said out loud what is going on about five times in this movie and I think <laughs> all of them were in the first half of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um. So do you have any, like, what's going on? What is going okay. on? So there's there's a couple different things. One, the marquee character is freaking weird. Like, he looks like he's straight out of an F.W. Murnau film. Like, just right out of <laughs> Nosferatu with his, like, pointy shoulders and, like, how he just, like, kind of clutches his arms behind his back the entire time. I'm like, dude, you look like you're straight out of a silent German expressionist film. Like, what are you doing? Why do you seem, like, menacing and weird all the time and just kind of like slowly like arches over and all of his like facial expressions are really over exaggerated but he like brings them on like really slowly like one of the weirdest parts in the film is whenever they're getting out of like they're getting pushed out of one of the rooms and the guy who was like following them around comes over just does that and then he does it back to him like what the freak is going on i totally forgot about that I, what? I, so, okay, that part, that's part. That's where the movie started to spin out of control for me <laughs> because because you started you start you know like I said I was trying desperately searching for some sort of logic to how they're interacting with the world right mm-hmm. and what we said so far sort of makes sense it can sort of by the end it seems like they can sort of go in and out at will I think and then there's some talk about certain people being aware of spirits you know diplomats are smart so they'll they'll see you or something so it starts to make sense at the end but the stuff in the middle you get this sense of like it's inception 
where they start to notice that you're there <laughs> you do more and, weird and things. start kicking yeah when you do more weird things and then they kick you out because they the they he flirts with the lady who seems modern day mm -hmm. she likes him for for no reason i think and they, it's like they've been together for like they know each other right. or something and then they go to another room and then all these guys carrying books around who are look like a previous era start to like shoo them in the Russian mm -hmm. way, you know, uh, with their hands. The modern woman comes later because before that there's the other woman who's like touching the statue and he goes up and he's like, oh, do you want me to show you around? And she's like, oh, I know this place. I used to work here. Oh, you're right. That's the one. And then so it's the same era. Yes. Right. Yes. But she's super weird, too. Is she? I <laughs> thought she, she was him. another. I I thought she was like another spirit or something. Mm -hmm. Also, let's talk about this. This was eighty yard to hell, right? Oh my gosh! They didn't even record audio whenever they were filming. Y yeah, but like, it's not good, right? Like, it's no, not it's not great. It's really not that good. Okay, because because there's times <laughs> where I actually I actually struggled to d distinguish the two characters, which is strange because they do not have similar voices. But there was times yeah. where it, I think it came out of sync with their, their mouth or, like, whatever. Mm -hmm. But that was more confusing, too. So there's – you know, we're talking about the sacrifice here. I think that's clearly a sacrifice that they made, which yeah, I can't necessarily – this is, this is I guess, the big question is, was it worth it to do it this way versus mm -hmm. a, a artificial – because I saw some real opportunities for cuts – here that they could have done yeah um so do you in your opinion do you think it was worth it to do this is it worth the challenge and the achievement because I mean, to me purse yeah you, you see, yeah yes only for the sense that you're going to go down and film history if this was not done in one shot this movie probably would not have been talked about at all like maybe have like a small following in russia because it's like oh cool it's telling like 300 years of russian history but it wouldn't have like the national acclaim because that's what people were freaking out about. They're like, oh my gosh, this film was done in one shot. It's the first time that this has ever been done. And that's why. You could literally have the film just be like one person walking on a street for like 90 minutes and maybe talking to people. And if it's like in one shot, you're still going to be like go down in film history as like the first movie to be done in one shot. And it doesn't really matter like what the content is. Whatever it is, it's going to be talked about i mean like even like with boyhood where the reason why that got so much attention was because it was filmed over the span of like 10 years so there's just these like more like milestones and i feel like boyhood does a better execution of like handling time than this does because like i feel like a lot of story is sacrificed because of the flow of this i mean there really isn't even a story it almost seems more like an art installation than a film at points yeah and i think that's my criticism i guess of this is that i really like the story that they could have told mm -hmm. or were trying to tell or, or, or did tell which is this, this the concept of of the the long reach of russian culture mm -hmm. and history and this is a great idea um but yeah it, it maybe part of it's that i i consider myself sort of a history buff mm -hmm. and i didn't understand uh what was happening with these people other than, oh yeah, that's Catherine the Great. Cause they said, oh yeah, that's Catherine the Great. And mm -hmm. okay. 
and then she's going out on a walk because I think she's you know blind or dement- has dementia or whatever late in life. Mm-hmm. Um, but there doesn't seem to like it's just these little vignettes of these characters, these famous people, and there yep. weren't a lot of them, right? Like that's part of the problem I think is that I also don't know Russian history enough to be able to distinguish between the way people dressed in the late. 1700s or Emp- the late empire mm-hmm. versus you know the the the, the czar uh nicholas era mm-hmm. versus like catherine peter. yeah yeah peter I, I i i honestly did not know all of them kind of mesh mm-hmm. mushed together to me yeah like i said like like they i was not able to tell what was what so that's part of it is like if you're russian i'm sure it's a little more visually obvious what era is what mm-hmm. Because the architecture doesn't change. I mean, it's a beautiful building. It stays beautiful. It's the constant. Yeah. I want more of that, and maybe it's just not written for me, and so it's there, and I'm just not getting Mm -hmm. it. But I wanted more of that story, and I would have been like, cool, your technical achievement is spectacular, but I also really liked the story, and I wanted a better executed version of it, I guess. Mm -hmm. Just with the way that the... The marquee and the marquee and the, the the narrator kind of are incomprehensible most of the movie on what their motivations are. Yeah, um, I, well, like one of my thoughts on this is that people kind of like compare it along the lines of like Rope and other like Max Ophel's films, like films that are done in like lesser shots and like have longer takes and that sort of thing. Whenever I think the comparison should be more to like. Baraka and Samsara or the Katsi trilogy where it's more like visual storytelling and there's not like it's almost like there is no story but there's also like every story is kind of like how I feel about this because you are getting like these little bits and pieces and it's almost more of like bits and pieces of humanity and that that kind of tells the greater story than actual like dialogue pushing the story along yeah so I guess this is kind of a general thing I have with more art house cinema is that I would actually like it to be, like I said, more conventional mm-hmm. or less conventional. <laughs> like, like yeah. I want, I want them to commit to the wordlessness of it, I guess would be one way where there's not this distracting. There's this sense of like, I think there's this tendency in, in a lot of this type of movie to just kind of be impressionistic with people Personally, for me, that takes me out of it because people don't act that w- you know. There's a certain like you. It's hard for me to deal with people that are kind of almost part of an impressionistic, <laughs> yeah, uh, ether- ethereal understanding of humanity when they they cease to act like a, an individual right. or or anything, and so um, they look high, basically, and. And that I don't. Lo- I'd rather have the wordlessness and the silence mm-hmm. and let that the body line. Because I, you're talking about his Nosferatu looking. I actually liked. He was a very distinct person, yes. and I liked that part of it. And it was when he started talking. I liked him being opinionated and then falling in love with the book. That was great. Mm-hmm. And you lose that when there's this bizarre interactions with people uh, that don't make sense. I'd rather just there be some sort of humanity that is silent versus versus and physical versus this kind of dream. I'm just not sure what the dialogue, the weird dialogue Mm -hmm. 
was supposed to do, or even if it is weird, I right. guess. And maybe it makes maybe it makes sense in Russian. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think it, this kind of plays into the rules thing, where there's a lot of films where characters don't like act out of time. If this marquee from 1800s France is walking along and sees this woman dancing and singing to a painting, he'd be like, what the frick are you doing? Like, get away from the painting. Like, don't touch it. And that sort of thing. And I mean, just I've been watching a lot of movies lately and I'm like, you can't have this sort of a character in like a person from the 1800s. That's kind of where a lot of more of the rules are broken in this. And you'd almost think that there'd be kind of like some culture shock from him of being like, whoa, what the frick is going on? Like, why are these people dressed like this? And there's like a little bit of that whenever it first goes to modern times in the one gallery and he starts talking with the poet and uh, the art critic in there. I mean, I I guess that's like almost too many facets to kind of explore. Like, but I don't know. I don't know. It's like weird. Yeah, part of me wanted... That's the thing. Part of me wanted him to... To, to fish out of water, right? And I, I'm sure that's not the way that they would ever go with yeah. that, right? But yeah, like there's a little bit of that. That's where it, it's like, all right, well, they they do sort of at the beginning hint at this idea that they are realizing that it's a weird situation, mm-hmm. right? He's like, oh, I speak Russian now, right? Yeah. That's part of what I didn't like is that there wasn't a great, like there was no clear direction in, their understanding or reaction to their situation. Mm-hmm. They they would act like that, like right, like like talk to the woman <laughs> and, and just kind of. In, 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 I mean, I mean, look. At, at some point, you're embracing. Uh, have you seen? I don't know. Have you seen Palm Springs? This no. is a. Re- I should not bring this up. <laughs> it's uh, this is this these movies do not be deserve to be mentioned in the same sentence. But Palm Springs is uh, Andy Samberg movie uh, oh the Long yeah Island, the guys recent one. Yeah. yeah and it's it, it's interesting because it's basically what if a person got stuck in groundhog day with someone that has been in groundhog day for for you know a long hmm. long time as you know it's pretty conventional comedy uh other than that and so you modern you know like we're wishing for that you get to see people react to their situation mm-hmm. right but it, uh, the main character or this you know sandberg's character is asked like, what did you do before this, right? Because he's been living this wedding day over and over mm. and over, and he's like, I-, I don't remember. Like, there's a mm. certain something that happens to you being stuck in that, right? I wanted yeah. them to either. It's so at points it feels like they're embracing like we're powerful, we can do whatever we want, but it seemed like mm-hmm. their understanding or willingness to talk about their understanding ebbed and flowed throughout the movie, mm-hmm. and by the end they're still like whispering like. I'm not sure if we should do that. Like, she, you shouldn't talk to them. Yeah, you know, leave them, leave them alone. It's like, oh, okay, here. like, don't touch the plates. What, yeah, yeah. It's like it's almost like I want clear. I want me to know the rules, and then seeing them learn them, or I want it to like there needs to be some consistency to the rules. Mm-hmm. I guess. I, and this is you and I are both Nolan fanboys, <laughs> and so this is this is I think where this hurts at least my ability to watch a movie like this where I expect to be <laughs> explained rules. what the rules are or for people to act confused by not knowing the rules. Yes. Like, like either way. And this seems to sort of – it's frustrating to me, I guess, because if I was in that situation, I would either give up mm-hmm. eventually and just go with it, right? Or I would try and figure out the rules. Mm-hmm. And they seem to be like, like – 
so passive. The director's character is so passive, like kind of mumbling under his breath, like, oh man, I, what's going on? Yeah. Like, what, what is the deal with this? And, and it's like, touch somebody, punch somebody in the face, yeah. like figure out what you, figure out what you can and can't do. Right. Which is entirely not the point of the movie. Right. right? But it did take, it did take me out of it because they, they hinted at mm-hmm. it at the beginning and they hint at it later on and they, they make it clear that they can interact with people and then they never explain how that works. Mm-hmm. And and I kind of wanted it to either be completely ethereal, tour, an amazing, spectacular, yeah. interactive tour of, of the theater, or of the of the museum and the palace, which is... Amazing. Works. Mm-hmm. It yeah. works as art. It does. And says a lot about Russia. And there's a, there's a longing. I mean, there's a longing for that era that's very clear. Mm-hmm. But I wanted that or I wanted to see these characters reacting to that in a real way and you kind of get this weird middle ground where they just do it and they're floating back and forth enough to to be distracting yeah or just like this would be really dumb but if just like random other people pop in throughout and they're like oh what the frick is going on and then they'd be like we were all transported here too and these are the rules can't touch these people like Gotta go silent here. Yeah, I, I don't actually want yeah. that. I mean, I mean, I want to. I, so I kind of want to like another movie would be fun with that. Mm-hmm. But like, uh, but like the scene where there's the three dudes and they're talking. Uh, it's modern day, and so he's a little upset. The Marquis a little upset that they've combined eras or something. Maybe I'm combining scenes, but there's it's the first time that they interact with people. There's mm-hmm. the two dudes, and he, the director, sort of long distance introduces them to him mm-hmm. and then it's not clear if he knows them or they know him or what's going mm-hmm. on that that's i think the it, perfect example of what's frustrating is it's like do i know in russian does this make sense right? right is there some clarity to what they're doing what they're what this scene is about if mm-hmm. not why are they hinting at this relationship that he has to the real world without making it anywhere close to something that you can interpret? That was, that's my, I mean, I feel like I'm criticizing the movie a lot and it doesn't deserve that. Uh, Sometimes these technical movies can, they're a masterpiece and there's Mm -hmm. another masterpiece in there that I wanted to see too. The rewatchability of this is really interesting. So, the first time I heard about this, I was in high school, and it was during a visit day to John Brown University, my alma mater. I went to the one of the film classes in there, the editing class, and that day they were watching Russian Ark. And so I saw a chunk of it, and then whenever I went to JBU and actually took the class my freshman year is whenever I actually watched it in full, and I just remember being so transfixed by it, and I was like, wow, this movie is like one of the greatest things I've ever seen, and just so astonished by it. And then watching it this time, I was like, oh, this is still good, but it's really sloppy. And there's actually like a lot of, I mean, which you have to kind of give some grace to a film that's all done in one shot. But there's like a lot. Of, I mean, like you were saying, like the ADR is pretty bad at points. The sound mixing in general is just kind of weird. The lighting is really rough in some scenes. Like, first off, I can't even imagine being a gaffer on this like I would not want to take that on it sounds absolutely miserable having to light these huge open spaces it's awful it's garbage like why would you keep the curtains closed you need more light <laughs> I I actually like the lighting I know it may I don't know if it's technically considered good but I I, th- I thought there was 
they did a good job of contrasting between this is a museum and this is a palace. And right. The lighting was a big part of that. There's some good scenes. Like I really like the candlelit scenes um, with Peter the First and that sort of thing. But there's other scenes whenever it goes into more modern times and it's just like him and the marquee like walking around looking at some of the paintings. And I'm like, it's so dim. Like you can't see anything. Like why don't you have more lights in here? And I know resources are very limited. And there's actually this really crazy story of whenever they're doing it took them three takes to do this. They said, like, if we mess up in the first 20 minutes, we can start over. So they had to restart two times, and then they actually did it a third time. And they're like, this has to be the last time, otherwise we can't make this movie. So the director speaks Russian, and the director of photography slash cameraman slash cam operator only spoke German. And so all throughout, they had a translator running with them trying to relay instructions to each other. And then the focus puller slash digital imaging technician was on like a comm set talking to all of the electricians further on. So whenever they're about to get to the grand ballroom scene, they had like these balloon lights that they were using that, would, you know, you could float up into higher positions so you wouldn't be seen by the camera. They start breaking and going out like minutes before they're about to get in there. And so he's like, get some cherry pickers, go in there, set up some lights. And so like literally like a minute before a cherry picker is like a crane. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. They run in, set up some lights, and like move the equipment out right as soon as they walk in and actually do the shot. So it's so crazy that it actually worked. It's hard for me to think like, would they even would this even gotten made if they had done you know like all of my criticism is is unfair because I'm I'm comparing it to what's been possible because of right it, like we said like I said and so I'm wondering like if they did a Birdman or 1917 where it's fake mm-hmm. it's fake it's not real I'm not even sure they would get to make this movie because the whole mm-hmm. thing was like I love the immersion in this these eras so much yeah. that especially I mean the ending is just amazing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I love the symbolism yeah. of the ending yep. with leaving. You know, at first I'm like, all right, so most of the five minutes of this movie is going to be them leaving the party. <laughs> like, like at first I didn't get it. And then you start to get this sense of like, oh, the guy tries to go back mm-hmm. into the party and he can't. It's the, the flow of time, yep. the inevitability of history, all this stuff is great. Like, like it, the party is over now and you can't go back. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love that. That was really good. You, there, the music helped a lot too with that. Like you really had a sense of of loss yeah. of of we don't get to go back to this, you know. Which I'm sure. I mean, that's especially now more. That's a peak in Russian mm-hmm. history. In if you're an artist, especially right. right. If you're an engineer or whatever, it's it's not that. It's it's the moon or it's the 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 space race. <laughs> that's part, one of the moments of history that they look back to longingly yeah. so you get that sense at the end but i i almost wanted more of of that you know falling in love with it mm-hmm. and you lose like it you clear it clearly happens with the marquee but you don't really get the sense of why i guess because yeah. of the dialogue <laughs> it's the russian disneyland ride where it's really beautiful but it's really depressing <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's Russian history. That's yeah. St. Petersburg, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I loved it. I really did. Yeah. I I, um, I need to rewatch it a couple times. I, I need to watch it more passively, I think, mm-hmm. um, because, like I said, I was trying to figure out what was going on, and, and I, there was no answer by the end. Right. You know? 
They're just going through it with them. Yeah. Well, there is the somberness to it that I feel like is in every Russian film. And it's really interesting. And I think it's actually like one of the things that keeps pulling me to Russian films is there is kind of like there's always like a sad, gloomy kind of overtone to it, no matter like how happy the subject matter is. And I think it's just because there's usually like a sense of nationalism in a lot of Russian films, but it's also like a sadness too, because there's a lot of just longing, like, oh, we wish we were in this great period instead of communist Russia, like in the USSR, whenever we have so many restrictions and we can't make the things that we want and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, it's just really fascinating. I mean, it's very apparent in like Tarkovsky film and, oh shoot, what is his name? Kalatazov's films, Eisenstein, Vertov, you know, all of these famous Russian directors. There's just like this appreciation, but somberness as well. Yeah, there's a, a big contrast between the achievements of the Russian Empire mm-hmm. and the experience of the people. Yes, that that is so much bigger than the other European. You know, when you're a French per, when you're French, you can be proud of the Eiffel Tower, mm-hmm. that that the the World's Fair that built it is is a symbol of your whole country, yeah. right? And and it and it's a a point of pride, and you can listen back to that era, and it really, you know, the the ruling class and the wealthy were a certain level of of uh, uh, of flourishing, but mm-hmm. that was a flourishing that kind of everyone got to be a part of as a nation. Yeah. Um, as much as much as that can happen, whereas the, all this stuff, it's like Peter the Great built this giant city. It's spectacular, and they had serfs. I mean, <laughs> like like there's all these amazing things that happen. I mean, he he reformed the system obviously and there's other reforms later but like they were so far behind in so many things in terms of being european Mm -hmm. that that the spectacular nature of the ark and saint petersburg is so in contrast with the rest of the country yeah and the experience of an average russian and and because of that there i think there's also this, this sadness of like there's these moments of greatness that they can look back at. They're so big. They're so big mm-hmm. that when they decide to do something, they can do it. Yeah. The sheer will of the people, but it comes at a cost sometimes. And we're very into symbols here in this country and, and statues. And, 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 and we, we there's a history that we want to remember. Mm-hmm. And I think in Russia, the attitude is a little bit different. There's these moments that they want to remember. Yes. But it's it's a little bit harder to to go for the entire like each era has a lot wrong with it, mm-hmm. which is honestly more true to reality. Yeah. But 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 here we're we've been better at kind of looking past stuff. Uh, but or being bad at looking past stuff. <laughs> no, no, no I, yeah. I mean, I mean, say, I'm saying, I'm, I'm saying, like, yeah, we 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 whitewash stuff. Oh, yeah. Whereas I think, um, especially this era that this movie was made. Uh, they had been told what history was for decades, mm-hmm. and then it was gone. But by this point, the the freedom of democracy had the the nineties were so rough for them after the Cold War ended yeah. that I'm sure you know there's a sense of like what do we even look back to? Mm-hmm. And since since Putin has kind of fused this nostalgia for that that era that combines the greatness the great achievements of the Soviet era simply as the Russian people did these things right. that sort of for the first time since communism, they have a national narrative. Yeah. But at this time, this was the ebb of this is a people, a collectivist people not having a, a national goal. 
Just um, forming like a new non-communist identity for the country. Yeah, and there's a lot of looking back towards the the czar era. But my parents, when they were adopting Dima, they went to Red Square, mm. and uh, you know there was a question of like, well, why is why is Lenin's tomb still here when you beat con- you know when you overthrew communism? Yep. And their their translator said it has to be somewhere. Gosh. So. So I mean that I mean that's the attitude is like here we in America especially we we have a story that we want to tell ourselves mm-hmm. and so we have symbols that we we have right. and and there's eras we look back to and I mean we're in a con- a lot of talk now of of what statues are appropriate what statues are not appropriate mm-hmm. are statues appropriate mm-hmm. right and and that's crashing up against our, that's just deciding us it's important to all of mm-hmm. us because we as a society kind of decide what we want to tell our story yeah. is and then we build to that mm-hmm. whereas for them this just kind of you leave it you leave stuff up because you know we we did great things under uh, for Lenin and there was bad parts too mm-hmm. and and there's kind of a you know, especially that era. I think now there's more traditional, obviously nationalism and 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 narrative. But it's it, back then there was sort of late '90s, early 2000s, especially for an artist. You're searching through like, how do I, how am I proud of this history and this beauty mm-hmm. that I'm seeing here in this this palace as a Russian? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's different. Kind of want to transition over into talking a little more technical as we're kind of wrapping things up. I mean, so this film is known for being made in one shot, but I don't think that's actually the thing that's influenced filmmaking the most. I think it what actually influenced filmmaking the most after this was just how much it used digital. This was just yes. like one of the first indie foreign art house films to actually be shot on digital. And it looks good. That's one of the things that really stands out to me in this a lot of digital does not look great, especially early digital, but this looks really good. And this was benefited because, you know, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou had already come out and Deacons had already done, you know, digital imaging and was able to tint the whole film. And so what's so crazy to me, so Stefan Chupek, who is the focus puller and then turned into the colorist on this, like they were basically colorizing as they went, which is insane to me because everything was just so new like one of the reasons why they had to shoot this on digital and one of the holdups for a film being done in one shot up until this point is that you can't do that with film like there's a limited amount of space on each reel that's why rope was done in 11 shots because that's like 15 minutes was the most they could get out of one reel of film like you couldn't do it before that so that's why they had to do it on digital for this and they had to find like the smallest camera you could find. And they shot it uncompressed HD onto a terabyte hard drive that could film for 90 minutes only, which is so <laughs> crazy. There's just like so many pieces of this where it's like, that shouldn't have worked. There's no way they should have been able to do that. And that's like one of the things that really impresses me about this is like the technical achievement and that this is one of the first films to actually do digital VFX. Like there's so many VFX shots in this and like so many, like they're like, oh yeah, of course we knew there was gonna be like, gear in the way and uh, crew members and all that sort of stuff. And so we just had to paint them out. And so they used like a very early version of Da Vinci to go in and like paint everything out. And they actually had 
all of the crew members in costume as well. So that way, if they got into one of the shots, they would look more natural in it. The only one who wasn't wearing a costume was the director, Alexander Sokorov. And then he was the only one that ended up getting in the shot. And so they had to paint him out. But it's really interesting. Like, I never noticed all of the the VFX zooms and focus pulls that they do throughout the film. Like, I don't know if you picked up on that, but just points where, like, the frame would just kind of, like, push in like that. I'm like, oh, that was really strange and kind of jarring and... Like the paintings, like they go zoom into the painting, right? Like that was the... Well, there'd be other points too where they'd just be like walking around into like a new hallway and like the focus would just kind of push deeper or they would like kind of zoom in just like a little bit. And I think they did that mostly... I mean, they did that in post-production to like kind of get other things out of the shot, like not only just painting people out, but actually digitally zooming in and post-production to make sure that the dolly isn't in the shot. That's really impressive. Yeah, the the I didn't think about the digital. Like they sh- they proved that you could use digital, I guess for they they walked so the room could run. Yes. Really? Yes. Yeah. Cuz cuz you know, it's one it's one thing to use digital, but it's one thing to use film taped next to digital <laughs> that you can cut between. And that's really that's where cinema really came into its own. He's the greatest filmmaker film. of our time. Yes, our why did it have to be our time? <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, I I mean it's just it's really a fascinating point of this that a lot of people don't know and doesn't get brought up later on, but actually like heavily impacted just filmmaking afterwards. And so Stefan Chupek who was the colors for this, continued and did some more stuff for Alexander Sokorov, but then, like, worked on Danny Boyle films. So he was, like, the colorist on, like, Slumdog Millionaire and 127 Hours and was real and a cameraman as well and really started pushing um, digital and, like, the use of, like, actually being able to use, like, different new types of cameras. And so he was actually really innovative in a lot of um, independent and then, like, more blockbuster with like 127 hours filmmaking and pushing digital it kind of into the new realm because there's a lot of like early people who use digital and like don't really know how it works and so there's like just a lot of movies from like the early 2000s that just like don't look good at all they're like oh digital is cheaper let's just do that instead do you have an example um oh like early Lars von Trier early 2000s Lars von Trier and like late 90s and that sort of stuff I'm like well doesn't look good um because they're like, oh, we need it to be pure because of Dogma 95, so we can't do any sort of like colorization or anything. Like It needs to be just straight what the camera captures. A lot of rom-coms, too, just look horrible in the early 2000s. Just co- comedies in general probably, yeah, would, would, I think, just in my mind, that's what pops in. That's really interesting. That's like a whole decade of influence, not from the one shot. Mm-hmm. Maybe it convinced me that it was worth sacrifices because of the cha- of the the solutions they came up with mm-hmm. the problems that came up were very influential. Yeah. So maybe that's worth it versus, you know, slightly better dialogue or <laughs> I mean, I think that's there's this film is so interesting whenever you break apart all of its influences cuz of course, you have to look back on Rope and Max Ophel's films for like the long take and like and Touch of Evil, like all of these like classic really long takes and you see elements of that in there. But even just with his directing style reminds me a lot of Terrence Malick. And if you see like any of the behind the scenes, it's all just like the director like yelling like, okay, now you go to the window. Okay, now you talk to this person. 
put your arm on there, do that, do that. And just like with Malik films, they're almost all completely ADR because it's just whenever they're filming, he's just going around telling people what to do and there isn't as much of a script. So that's just really interesting. Um, you see influence from like Alain René, especially of like last year at Marienbad. And that's what like the beginning of this film like reminds me so much of a René film and just kind of like the floating etherealness of it. Like, yeah, last year at Marienbad or Hiroshima, Manamor, of just kind of like, oh, yeah, you have like a narrator going with you and kind of like transporting you through this weird world. So how choreographed were, I mean, part of the way through this, I was like, are they just kind of putting on a party <laughs> and letting letting it happen and then walking through it? Or was it like, was it kind of go, go, mingle and then i will call stuff out as it needs to happen for you know oh there's too many people over here whatever like how much of this was just organic and how much of it was choreographed specific people moving specific places right of you know the extras right so they actually only had access to the hermitage for 36 hours so yeah (laughs) um and so in the, the seven weeks prior to, or seven seven months prior to this, Alexander Sokarov and Butner, the director of photography, would walk through the museum. And so they were able to walk through the route five times. But the first time they tried to do it, they couldn't even walk through the whole like choreograph of the film in one day at the museum, just because it's so huge. So like the timing in this is really necessary. Like, I mean, they had to mark out every single step, like how long it was going to take to go through each room because this place is massive. I can't remember how long the distance is throughout all of it, but it's just huge. All the while, while carrying 77 pounds of camera gear. And he said, like, whenever they got to the ballroom scene, the director of photography was talking to his assistant and saying, like, I can't do this. I need to stop. And, like, almost just dropped everything right then and there in the last, like, 15 minutes of the film. But his uh, assistant, like, wasn't really paying attention to him, like, being in pain and was just saying, like, no, look at this. This is amazing. Like, just feel the spirit of the room. And he's like, yeah, yeah, okay. And then was able to push himself all the way through it. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, those two were the only ones who were able to like choreograph and he went in and like took video of everywhere to try to figure out lights, but all of the choreography they did had to be in different buildings because like they couldn't practice in the Hermitage. And so it is like you practice somewhere and then actually move it. Like there wasn't a full rehearsal or anything. It was just like, all right, we have to go through. And so like, I think a big chunk of it is Sokorov directing and telling people like where to go. But there is, like, choreography with it as well. Because, like, I'm assuming they got cued to start, you know, their scene in that room. Yeah. But, like, uh, the, it seemed like this was the end. They're putting on a show. Mm-hmm. They're playing music. That's just start playing, I guess, yeah. right? And then play well. And so at that part, it's like it's, you're really just putting a party on right yeah. and then it's the people the timing once it starts of walking through mm-hmm. but uh, the the guy that played was it the same Nicholas twice that that reacted to the the Shah's emissary and then was with his family yes that's Nicholas so the second did, yeah. did he have to do a, a costume change well I don't know if it's the same actor because you don't really see him like super clearly in the first shot 
Um, so it might be two different actors. It, it could be, yeah. But he also had 22 ADs on working on this film. So like all just positioned throughout like different points, tracking like where they were going, all of that sort of stuff. It's crazy. Which another thing I do want to quickly applaud on this film, they do a great job of finding era appropriate looking people. Like everyone looks like they fit in. There. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean the, the, the world that they built is so amazing. Like mm-hmm. it's completely immersive and, uh, like those you know just it feels like you're walking through time it really does they really mm-hmm. nailed that that feeling and the lighting was part of that where yeah. if it was poorly lit it was later on and more of an art museum or whatever and mm-hmm. or during the siege um it felt like a time capsule it yeah. really did and it was the that's what where my criticism comes from is that I kind of wanted to just keep doing that. <laughs> Maybe next time I watch it, I'll I'll kind of tune out the guys yeah. more and, 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 and just walk with them. Do you know if there's a tour of the Hermitage, Hermitage, whatever, the Winter Palace that, that, that follows d- recreates exactly this? where they walked? Yes. No, um, because I think it goes through some rooms that like tourists aren't allowed and it would look completely different because they basically had to, like any of the art pieces that any cast members get close to weren't real. Like they had to put in fakes because they're like, nope, you can't touch anything. You can't get this close to it. You can't do this, this and that. They added in like pillars. They added in foliage. They added in a ton of stuff. So it would look completely different if you tried to recreate it on your own. This is a bad PSA for how to interact with art. Yes. Because people were sniffing the art. People were walking up to it. We talk, you know, talking about these the weird scenes. The super weird scene where the soldiers kind of notice them and then come up to talk to them mm-hmm. and then kind of give them look at them for a little bit, don't say anything, and they're just like, like it, it, they don't have a conversation, a full conversation, and then but they mm-hmm. were they were getting close to the painting, you know. Yep. Yeah, people are gonna people people are gonna want to do that now because of this movie. Mm-hmm. I don't the sniffing man, the sniffing. The sniffing is weird stuff. He also I understand the sniffing. So his last film that he's made too, Francophonia, is like kind of in the vein of this because I was like, oh, this would be like an interesting series to try to te- like go through a museum and tell like a country's history. So that one takes place in the Louvre, mainly in World War II era, but like partially goes throughout like showing paintings. But it's also about um, the director at the time working with the Nazis and like hiding away the paintings in different like countryside chateaus to keep them away from the Nazis, but also like cuts back and forth between modern day, like the director's also like the lead voiceover in it as well. And it's like cutting back and forth between back then, modern day, whenever some art pieces are being transported across sea and the director's talking to the guy and then like he's in the middle of a big storm and they're like debating on whether they have to dump the cargo or not. So it's a little more esoteric than Russian arc. And like there's literally a scene... Yeah, there's literally a scene where he sits down like the director of the Louvre at the time and like the Nazi who he's talking to and is like, just so you know, this is how it turns out for France. Just so you know, this is how it turns out for Germany. And then they just stand up and walk away. And that's like the end of the movie. I kind of love that, though. That's kind of <laughs> like a like a Quentin Tarantino, like. Oh, yeah. Changing ca- history. Ca- cathartic. Ca- well, cathartic, like speaking meta you know, description of history, like, oh, you know, 
you get to know how it ends now. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, like, you know, I'm going to tell you, you know, I love that, that you, you, what you described doesn't sound more esoteric. It sounds a lot more grounded just because there's a story. <laughs> yes. And no, there's like some story, but then it also gets like really art housey and points. Like it's not all one shot. It just kind of like cuts back and forth between like him watching on a laptop screen, like talking to this guy and then mixing in era appropriate people in the 40s with like modern tourists and like different like aspect oh, okay. ratios and like you can see like the sound waves on the side whenever people are talking and that sort of stuff oh okay that's really weird okay <laughs> <laughs> it looks like you're watching him make the movie it sounds like kind of yeah weird yeah, because they they kept the room separate, which was good. Mm -hmm. You could kind of you you enter a room, you realize it's time to figure out what era it is. You know, yeah. if it's not explained to you, and and then you you know, you it's like a dream. You kind of realizing your surroundings, mm -hmm. and then and then you move on. I appreciated that because if you real it's the it's the times when the spaces started to mix, mm -hmm. and it wasn't clear what was going on that started to like distract me and i was no longer immersed because i you know right things are bleeding over so i pre it was mostly uh clear what what was going on in each individual scene mm -hmm. historically you know what what they filled the room with yeah i'm i'm ready to move on to the trivia and challenge but right before that i want to read you a letter that is going to make you like this director a lot less <laughs> so this film was nominated for like a cinematography award and I think also a set design award and the director rejected it saying like, no, I don't want to be awarded for this. And here's his letter to the European Film Awards. It says, Dear colleagues, unfortunately, I've never received any official addressed to me personally information about the fact that my film Russian Ark is being nominated for Felix Awards. However, from certain private sources, I have learned that Russian Ark will be regarded in two nominations. None of these nominations has anything to do with the estimation of the film in general. I regard it necessary to draw your attention urgently to the following. Russian Ark is the fruit of the work of a large group of Russian and German filmmakers. As the author of the idea, co-author of the screenplay, director and creator of the image design of this film, I understand very well the significance of our production for the history and practice of professional cinema. Therefore, the moral aspect of the estimation of such film is of special importance. I care a lot about the group of my collaborators and cannot accept any attempt to praise the efforts of some of them without admitting the role of the others. The film should be taken as a whole, in all caps. Only thus the contributions to this unique all project caps. of all members of the group and each of them in person could be judged. By the way, Russian art producers have known for a long time that the author-director maintains such an attitude to the estimation of the film. I would like to express my heartfelt gratitude to the European Awards members for their understanding and respect for our work, but I'm forced to insist on removing the film from all the nominations. What were those nominations for? I, one was for cinematography. The other one, I think, was for set design, which I'm like, I feel like the director of photography would have been like, oh, yeah, I would have liked to have gotten that award. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like he wanted a best picture. Yes, very much so. <laughs> for the whole thing. Best picture, nothing. Yeah. It doesn't make me hate him as much as I think you thought it would, but it it's annoying. Yeah. You got to ask your guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get why with this one he's like, this isn't really set design mm. because it's ju it's so different than filmmaking. Right. So I get why he's like, don't fit me in a box unless you're giving me an award for the whole dang thing, basically, yeah. is essentially what I think he was saying. Mm -hmm. He wants an award, but... 
yeah, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta let your guys win awards. You know, right. just maybe the only chance they ever. But uh, also, you know, he he he's a he he's a little angry with Europe there. So yeah, you know, maybe that's part of it too. Yeah. Is he he just wants to be recognized. Mm-hmm. As a as a master all the way, but it would, it would be like George Miller for Mad Max Fury Road to be like, no, take away all of my Oscar nominations. Like I only went Best Picture. You know, he's like, I I did like all of the visuals for it. I did the screenwriting. I did you know all of these aspects of it. So I created this world. Yeah, you don't want to take that away from the cinematographer. No. I'm sure he's upset. Who I'm assuming he did not get a director nod or whatever the equivalent. You know, Best Director. I don't think so. Not and so yeah, that's why he's upset. Yeah. Is that's ridiculous because you know what he did. That's the hardest part mm-hmm. is the logistic. You know, putting everything together because it's so different. Yeah, but yeah, you got to give your guys a chance to win an award. Mm-hmm. That's not fair. Yeah, I was just imagining Mad Max. This is the whole situation you described being like. I only want to win Best Car Chase <laughs> yeah. at the MTV Awards. That's the only one I want to win. Everything else means nothing. I I worked all this time to make the greatest car chase in the history of cinema, and you're here telling me that I have great cinematography? I don't care. <laughs> we all work together to make the greatest car chase in history. <laughs> if I don't get a Nickelodeon wa- blimp for coolest movie of the year, I'm taking <laughs> back everything. <laughs> I will also accept best flamethrower solo <laughs> anyway yes uh, let's let's see how little i know okay. about this movie uh question number one which russian figure is not portrayed in the film is it a leo tolstoy b catherine the great c alexander pushkin or d anastasia romanov it's tolstoy yep nice yeah final answer nice you got it where's pushkin though i i remember his name being in there he's but... briefly in there like he's one of the guys who's like arguing with his wife whenever they're coming up the steps like earlier on in the film like right before he's about to meet the first woman that he oh he, he, he calls him out he says that's that's Pushkin yeah or something yeah. like that right yeah, yeah, yeah. okay that's what yeah how many digital visual effects are in the film a 200 b 700 c 1500 or d 80 80 final answer yes incorrect it's 1500 Dang it. Okay. Yeah. I knew it was going to be a lot or not a yep. lot. It was a lot. Question number three. What year was the Hermitage constructed? A, 1845, B, 1764, C, 1701, or D, 1812? I should know this. It's 1812. That's not Final answer? Wrong, yes. That's incorrect. It is B, 1764. Wait, so when you said that, you meant the White Palace or... Because there's more than one... Right, but just like the institution in general. Ah, yes. okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. Wow, that's early. That's really mm-hmm. early. All right. <laughs> Your challenge is a little loose. Um, list 10 films with a scene in a museum. Night at the Museum. Yep. Night at the Museum 2. Yep. Now it gets harder. <laughs> Ferris Bueller's Day Off, yep. Art Institute. I'm trying to think through. Fa- um, oh, I was gonna say Get Smart, but that's the Walt Disney. Yeah, cin- that's not a the museum. Symphony. That's a. It looks Symphony. like a, it looks like a Guggenheim, it but does. it's not. Because um, I have to think individual museums and then think what takes place in that museum. Um, think Nicolas Cage. Oh, uh, um, 
Oh yeah, okay. Smithsonian stuff. So, uh National Treasure. Yep. Don't don't help me. National Treasure 2. Yeah. Okay. Smithsonian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not I'm thinking art museum that's too limiting. Okay. Does a planetarium count as a museum? Sure, why not? Capex. Oh, that is not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> okay. Capex cuz there's that scene where they I don't know why I remember this movie, but they, they, they're like looking at the stars and they're in a planetarium. I'm thinking yeah. through types of museums. Uh, oh, man. I'm sure there's a... James I will not Bond. count aquariums or zoos. We built a zoo. <laughs> we built a, zoo. Zoo, a zoo is not a museum. No. But I was thinking an if an you said aquarium, aqua- then you would think along the lines of like a zoo. An aquarium does count. Um, Maybe if it was not. a museum no, of you're natural right. history, yes. Aquarium, Speaking no. Museum of Natural History. I'm trying to think through James Bond. I'm sure there's been scenes. I just don't uh, mm. feel like Skyfall has a scene in a museum. But it's one I don't of remember where that. Q, 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 I thought, gives him something in a museum. So it's... It, the modern oh, one. So it's, yeah, it's either, you're right. Whenever he goes and like sits yeah. next to him, and is that Skyfall? I thought it's when he meets him. So I thought it's Skyfall. Yeah. Skyfall. Okay. There's a classic right, I, Steven Spielberg. The plot kind of revolves around the museum. What? It doesn't take this place is... in a museum. There's like a little bit of it in the museum. Oh, da 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 da. Come on, come on. Actually, does. Indiana Jones go to a museum. Indiana and Raiders Jones, of the Lost Ark. Ra- Ra- Raiders of the Lost yep. Ark. I don't. I can't remember the scene though. Where does it's he go in the museum? It's towards the beginning. I think whenever he's like returning one of the artifacts. Does he? I'm pretty sure he's at school. Or no, he's it's at, at the end of the movie. Whenever he's talking with the guy in the museum, with the U.S. officials. That is not the museum. That's that's Capitol. I don't think there's a museum. I'm pretty for, sure for all, there is. I'm pre- I'm pretty sure there's not because uh, Brody always comes to him at school, mm-hmm. right? That's a good question. I've I've never figured out if that's a Smithsonian or not. So maybe Raiders, maybe Raiders, yeah. whatever that end scene is. But yeah, he's all this talk about you know it belongs in a museum, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I can remember a scene where he's in a museum. I'm pretty sure there is. Uh, it was on a list of a lot of the top ten museum scenes in movies. <laughs> I guess I, I just assumed everything was the school, but mm-hmm. maybe there's some museum. <sighs> okay, two more. Uh, two there's more. A I got Rob this. Reiner film. See, you're, you're 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 throwing me off with this. I gotta think through the museums, okay. and then I gotta think about what takes place in the museum. Uh, North by Northwest doesn't have anything. You're close though. You're very close to one. Vertigo. Yep. Vertigo. Does that count? Mm-hmm. Does uh yeah 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 that does count. Vertigo. You need one more. Pa- Palace Arts. Ron Howard. Ron Howard series, actually. I don't know what you're talking about, actually. It's a series of films. Don't see you're asking. You're you're. I've, obviously, it's it's. I'm going to be embarrassed that I don't know it. Big but controversial you're, you're hit. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. The Da Vinci Code. Yep. I forgot that was him. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was. I wasn't thinking European museums right. at all the louvre uh um uh i don't need any more right I'm no done. you don't or do I? if you think of other okay, ones well, but, but live die repeat what's that called what's the actual name of that they named they oh named edge of tomorrow edge of tomorrow don't they go to the louvre 
in Edge of Tomorrow? Maybe. Does that count? I'm not sure. At the end, yeah, yeah why not? that's the climax. You also right. didn't even say Russian arc. <laughs> oh, I didn't say Russian arc? No. What? You know. Yeah. I was like, other ones. Yeah. Russian arc. I also got uh, When Harry Met Sally, Manhattan, Looney Tunes back in action. They go to the okay. Louvre in that. It Was it Guggenheim in a movie? I can't remember. I mean, it, it's so iconic, but I Probably. actually don't remember any, in, any interior scenes. I was just thinking through American... American museums. museums, yeah. What is in L? Was there any in L.A. that are? What do you? I don't even oh, know. Oh, the planetarium one. I thought you were going to say was La La Land. Do they go into the? Yeah, remember planetarium? they spin around in the stars. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah, uh, that they're always that's. It's funny because that's the only one I can remember. Now that you've said it, that where they actually go inside that building because it's so famous, but it's just in a set, you know Griffith Observatory or whatever. Mm-hmm. Is just an establishing shot, not something you go to. Yeah. Or even when you, well, you go there, but then... It's not anymore. It's not anymore? Mm-mm. I don't think so. Or maybe it's shut down. One of those two. That would make sense. Yeah, because it's always like you go outside for the view. You don't... Yeah. Go, you know, I've never... I, I actually didn't even know it was what whatever on the inside, but... Other famous museums. Palace of the Fine Arts or whatever is really famous. Obviously, mm-hmm. Vertigo... I don't think Indiana Jones goes in a museum. We'll have to look Pretty it up. Pretty sure. I got to I'll find the scene and I'll send it to you. It, 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 that end scene must have been the, the Smithsonian or one of the Smithsonian. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure it is. I think that wraps us up for Russian Ark. We hey, we did the episode in one take so we're basically as good as the as the film. That I actually uh, we paused in the middle, so I did record two separate segments Shoot. that you'll have to edit together. Right. So I'm sorry. Ni- so it's 1917 we're, instead of um, Russian yes. Arc. Yes. <laughs> Is that only two? No, I thought no, it was there's like a three. lot more than two. Effectively. Not, no, no, not literally. Yeah, there's like two shots. That's the weird thing that a lot of like one-shot films are doing lately. Like there's always a spot where it cuts. I'm like, why not? I mean, for 1917, I understand for like the time portion of it but birdman you know cuts as well so yeah it's weird because they advertise it falsely basically yeah. they say this is a one-shot film and 1970s especially they were like it's one shot and then mm-hmm. it's like not there's two shots, and yeah. birdman birdman at least it's him trying to kill himself right and then the band plays and it's really weird yeah but and like that you it, see it, icarus falling and the jellyfish and all that sort of stuff yeah, it's played. I mean, it it's shocking, and it's at the end, so I guess it mm-hmm. it makes sense. But yeah, it's almost like like you're talking about running, so they can walk. You know, walking so they can run. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of opened it up. Like no one's gonna top this. No one's gonna mm-hmm. top Russian art. You can't. You can't possibly do this. So there's no. You shouldn't even try. So you can use the artistic side of it's what's funny you're talking about the digital being the biggest influence it's almost like ending the one shot completely yeah yeah (laughs) with with one shot one try they did it you know one one movie did it no one's gonna top it so now you can stop trying to do that and you can just use it for artistic effect great now we don't have to do this thank you for taking the hit (laughs) yeah taking the hit also, my personal no, I mean, theory for this film is I'm pretty sure Alexander Sokorov watched Andrei Rublev, saw the last 15 minutes of the movie, and it was like, let's just make that into an entire movie. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. 
I, I think he walked through the museum and he was like, that was really good. Let's do that again. <laughs> but with Can more costumes. Can we get costumes. a camera doing this? Yeah. <laughs> I, this is like, do they, this, you know, we're winding down, but this yeah. is a random question. Do they have like, you know, we have Civil War reenactors. Do they have like fancy dance reenactors or something? Like, like how do they, they were these people they probably have that. probably like balls where people come in costume. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it seemed like there was a, just so many people that mm-hmm. they had to have some knowledge of the dancing. So that's not just people off the street. Like, I was just wondering, they got to be historic, maybe a histor- historic enthusiasts of some kind. But it's like they're Gettysburg because they're they <laughs> just get a bunch. They just get a bunch of historic reenactors, right. and, and have them do their thing. Yeah. Well, I think that finishes us up for today. Tune in next time. Our next episode is the Hitchhiker made by Ida Lupino, and we are having a special recurring guest, Michelle Johnson. She was last on our Ravenous episode, so we're excited to have her on again, discussing on what it was like to be, well, for Ida Lupino, what it was like to be, like, one of the first female Hollywood directors making a noir and being the first female director to make a film noir. So it's going to be a good time. We're looking forward to it. Uh, Make sure to follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can find us at Rules of the Frame. You can also email us as well. We love to hear you guys' comments, questions. If you have any films that you want us to cover or anything like that, make sure to send them on over to us. Who knows? We might do it. Uh, If you have any questions about past episodes or future series and all that sort of stuff make sure to ask those as well uh we'd love it if you gave us a rating on itunes and follow us on other platforms it just helps our show to be more visible and helps us to be seen through other people's feeds and all that sort of stuff we really like that we also love it when you guys share us with friends and family members all of that sort of stuff Uh, we got to thank you john for the use of your graphic and Caden Reed, Ethan Stafford, and Luke Hogan for the use of the theme song and outro. This has been Film Analysis for a Modern Audience. <laughs>